It's Friday. The wee hours of the morning of Friday, we should add. We recall that just moments ago, Jesus had laid himself bare there in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to his Father. And yet now he's come, he's been strengthened by prayer, having gone to his Father. He knows what is ahead of him, and he knows what he must do. So he encourages the disciples to rise up, to get going, to meet the accuser. He sees them in the distance there, there in the middle of the night, the wee hours of Friday morning. We can imagine seeing the light from the torches that were coming amongst this great crowd. And this crowd is comical, isn't it? Judas had already betrayed him. They had given the signal. This group was coming. They'd already decided, the Sanhedrin had decided to uh, arrest Jesus and stealth. That's what's going. All this is coming to fruition. And this whole crowd is comical, right? Total overkill. People are armed with swords and clubs, maybe some weapons to take charge of the peaceable Jesus, the gentle Jesus. As they come up, as the crowd comes up, the apostle John emphasizing that Jesus knows all that is about to happen. He notes how Jesus steps forward into this crowd and says, whom do you seek? And when the answer came from the crowd, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus says, I'm your guy. I love that. And at this moment, we, re-learn, we learn from scriptures that some of the soldiers, they draw back and they fall to the ground, similar to the customary responses of theophanies in times past. Jesus tells the soldiers, go ahead, arrest him, let his followers go. And here he's being the good shepherd, protecting his sheep. But also he's deliberately fulfilling scripture. And off they go. We can only imagine what that was like in that moment. Maybe sometime 12.30, 1 a.m., he watches amidst this firelight. The disciples run away. Not only that, we know the kiss of death has come. Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek. How that must have felt. They carry Jesus back to Annas. Annas used to be the high priest. He's no longer the high priest, but this is the first kind of meeting of many meetings that he'll have. Keep in mind, Jesus has not yet gone to sleep even since yesterday. Annas questions Jesus about his teaching and his disciples indicating, uh, Annas does, he indicates some kind of concern, both theological and political. Jesus responds by making it clear he's never concealed his teaching. He's done it all out in public. He has nothing to hide, no private agenda. Annas is frustrated probably by Jesus' refusal to answer his questions, so he sends him bound to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who's the actual high priest at the time, second meeting here in the wee hours of Friday morning. And this is the first stage of the more formal trials that Jesus will have to endure. Charges are going to have to be brought later. But before the charges can be brought against Jesus, before the Roman governor, the charges must be formally confirmed by that high priest, by, Caiaph- by Caiaphas, uh, who's the head of the Jewish high court. So that's why he's there. This is the second meeting already in the early hours. As he's at that meeting with Annas, word is quickly sent to the Jewish religious leadership, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, and telling them they've got, they got Jesus. He's in their meeting with Annas. They kind of make their way into the house. They make their way over to Caiaphas' house. For this speedy trial, they're going to try to get it done before the uh, sunlight comes so they can not or actually get in front of the public stir that it could come, that could come as a result of this mock trial in the darkness. 
So the Jewish leaders, they hurry to expedite this trial. They arrive at a death sentence before the day progresses and the news of Jesus' arrest again spreads. They're, they're going to be in a much stronger position to kind of spin that story. So they're trying to get out in front of it. And as these charges come there in Caiaphas' house, the most serious charge that Jesus' accusers are able to produce is his statement of destroying the temple and in three days it will rise. You remember that one? Well, Jesus was speaking, of course, of the temple of his body and was, uh, was presenting himself as the replacement of the physical temple, which would soon be destroyed by the Romans. But Jesus, is, Jesus would soon be the person through whom God's people would complete and have unhindered access to God. His words, however, are twisted by these dudes as a threat against the physical temple, as if somehow Jesus wanted to like lead this armed mob to go and destroy the physical temple. But even with, this, even with regard to this charge, however, the testimony of Jesus' accusers, they still don't agree. Jesus responds to these claims with silence. Can you believe that? He knows that the outcome of the proceedings against him is already determined. There's nothing he can say. And he's ready to meet it all. The high priest is apparently getting impatient there, Caiaphas, with uh, the pro- progress of the trials and Jesus' refusal to really answer any of these false witnesses. So he asks Jesus uh, directly whether he is the Christ, the Son of God. Of course, he gets to this affirmative answer. He gets an affirmative answer. Caiaphas is going to have legitimate basis for requesting the death penalty from Pontius Pilate. He's going to be able to go and like, say, this, this dude is uh, inciting insurrection and treason. And the affirmation of Jesus as the Son of God, this seals Jesus' death on both theological and political grounds. So theologically, Jesus has blasphemed in their minds by claiming to be the Son of God. This was completely unacceptable to Jewish leadership. And then politically, though, Jesus has claimed to be the one who will come, uh, uh, that Jesus will become as God's agent to receive his cosmic kingship. So this was unacceptable to the Romans, right, who recognizes there's only one emperor, that of, that of Caesar. Sanhedrin now had what they needed. And at this point, that little court there in Caiaphas' house, the first beatings begin. The surrounding guards, probably some of the leaders of the temple police, they start spitting on Jesus. They start striking him. This physical abuse brought about the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies where it says his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The guards mock his claim to be God's Messiah and they cover his eyes and they strike him and asking him to prophesy concerning the identity of the one who struck him. And they address him in mockery as the Christ. It's about this time when the denial of Peter is occurring. Terrible events. You can only imagine what's going through Jesus' mind at this point. Well, after this second trial in Caiaphas' house, after sunrise on Friday, the final consultation of the full Sanhedrin region condemns Jesus to death and sends him to Pilate. All right, so this is the third meeting. Just a little, this kind of affirmation, because remember, they've done this mock, really unbiblical trial of sorts. They've done this under the cover of darkness. And so now that they've got the kind of information they want, they get this kind of mock, they get this trial that's really the formal one, the actual one, the full Sanhedrin. They come together, they condemn him to death. So uh, this is in the mornings. Now that the light is up, they're able to have a real trial. And so the gospel authors, they kind of pass over the vinyl verdict of the Jewish trial and relative brevity. They kind of move through it quickly, the Gospels do. 
The most powerful members of the council had already reached their verdict right earlier in the night of this Friday. There's no doubt after Jesus' Christological confession and the high priest's dramatic tearing of his robes that Jesus was worthy of death. And so the formal verdict only requires the advent of sunrise and a quorum of the Sanhedrin, which now they had and they did. Jewish leaders waste no time in passing that verdict. Now they're ready to bring them to the Roman government. Fourth meeting. Annas, Caiaphas' house, Sanhedrin. Now we go to, they now take Jesus, who is bloodied and butchered. Now they're taking him to Pilate's house. As this happens, by the way, Judas sees all of this. He tries to go back, but it's too late. Sad reality to Judas' story. But despite the fact that the Sanhedrin had sentenced Jesus to death, it did not have that legal authority to execute him, right? That's going to have to go to the Romans who are in control. They, they reserve the right to, to mete out capital punishment, which is what these Jewish dudes wanted for Jesus. And so for this reason, as soon as the Sanhedrin, how they got that formal sentence, they brought him to bound to Pilate. Pilate was the guy that's kind of the, he's the governor of Judea on behalf of Rome at the time. And they know, the Jewish leaders know, that Pilate cares little about the theological charges of blasphemy that mean so much to them. So they emphasize, these Jewish leaders emphasize to Pilate the political charges. They claim that Jesus had misled the nation. That, uh, had, uh, they, they say that Jesus had uh, been forbidding people to pay tribute to the emperor and um, had pro- proclaimed himself to be the messianic king. And so the charge of blasphemy would not result in Roman execution, but for Jesus to claim kingship. Well, that meant he had to set himself directly against Caesar as a rival emperor. That was what they're going after. So there was a charge what could stick if found to be true. That would result in execution. They knew this. So they, they mentioned the stuff about paying taxes, but they really emphasized this notion of kingship. Pilate responds to these charges by asking Jesus directly, are you the king of the Jews? And Pilate only cares about determining whether Jesus is a threat to the Roman imperial power, right? That makes sense. And Jesus, interestingly, he, he speaks up at this point. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would not have been fighting, would have been fighting, I should say, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And so Pilate hears this and he's like, all right, so you are a king, right? And Jesus says, well, you have said so. Chief priests pounce on Jesus' answer to kingship with an onslaught of intensified accusations, right? Pilate, Pilate is greatly amazed when Jesus hears all this. These guys are like, see, see, see. And they're saying all these kinds of things. And, Pilate, and Jesus, meanwhile, says nothing, nothing. Any other man in Jesus' position would be eager to answer his accusers in hopes of saving his life. But Jesus knows where he's going. He knows what he has to do. He answers nothing. This, of course, amazes Pilate, but the the chief priests and the accompanying crowd of followers had insisted that Jesus was fomenting result among the people from Galilee to Judea. And when Pilate hears that, he starts thinking about his boy, Herod, because Herod has uh, jurisdiction up there in Galilee. And so he wants out of this whole thing. So he sends him up to Herod, fifth meeting of the day. Again, this is still Friday. We've been going on wee through through the wee hours of the morning. We're still in that first kind of hours of the day. The sun has just come up. Jesus is now already going to his, what did I say, fourth or fifth meeting. He meets Herod. Herod's heard about Jesus. He wants to see Jesus do some miracles. Jesus doesn't play his reindeer games. 
Herod sends him back. Back to Pilate. When Jesus returns to Pilate from his audience with Herod, Pilate meets with the chief priests and the Jewish leaders. He renders his verdict. He says, listen, I'll punish, I'll punish Jesus and then I'm going to get rid of him. And Pilate makes clear that both he and Herod found him innocent. Still not yielding, though, to the inevitable, Pilate, believing Jesus to be innocent, desiring to see him freed, proposes a solution that he believes will take care of the problem. Because after this little flogging, this little initial flogging, nothing happens. So he's created this custom, apparently, Pilate has, where he can release one of the prisoners over at this time. And he says, listen, listen, you take Jesus or you take this guy, Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is a violent dude. He'd been in prison for taking part in an insurrection and committing robbery and murder. And you guys know what happens. Here it is again, early hours of Friday, early hours of daylight on Friday. Despite the, they, they choose, the crowd chooses Barabbas because all of the Jewish leaders kind of got them geared up to choose him. The irony is palpable. Choosing a sinner over a savior. Well, despite the crowd's choice of Barabbas, Pilate attempts to still carry out his earlier stated intention to punish and release Jesus. He's, he, so again, he, he flogs Jesus, during which time the soldiers mock Jesus again by placing a crown of thorns, crushing it on his head. And guys, I've, I've, I've seen some of these, I've felt some of these thorns that would have been there. These things are like nails. They go into his head. They mock him as the true king of the entire universe, which of course he is. And after having Jesus flogged, Pilate presents him to the crowd in order to demonstrate that he did not think Jesus deserved death, that he administered the punishment that he thought Jesus deserved. And at this point, Matthew and Mark record Pilate then asking, well, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Because these guys, these, these Sanhedrin dudes, they still want him crucified, right? They want him killed. So he's already done that. He's already had him kind of mocked, but that wasn't enough. And so they killed Godem. And Pilate's like, what do you want me to do? And that's when they say, crucify him. Pilate's not ready to acquiesce to the, uh, to the Jewish authorities' demands yet. And so he sarcastically refuses to comply, instructing them to crucify Jesus themselves, something he knows that they cannot legally do. But the, le- the Jewish leaders, sensing that victory is close, they're almost there, they ignore Pilate's refusal and continue to insist that according to their law, Jesus must die because he had made himself to be the Son of God. And when he hears that, when Pilate hears that, that Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God, well, that stops Pilate in his tracks even more. He starts going, man, this, this dude's claiming to be divine. Not only is he innocent, silent, taking all this, he claims to be divine. So speaking with Jesus alone, Pilate asks him, where are you from? When Jesus refuses to respond, Pilate issues this veil threat. You're not going to speak to me? Don't you know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Man, I love this. Jesus, I can imagine him looking at him saying, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Pilate leaves that brief encounter with a renewed desire to release Jesus, but the Jewish leaders, they intensify their efforts to begin and they begin to uh, apply serious political pressure And they start saying to Pilate, listen, if you release him, if you release Jesus, you're not Caesar's friend. They're threatening Pilate in a way. Crucify him. The crowds are getting louder. Crucify him. Pilate says, why? What evil has he done? But the crowd, they ignore Pilate. They drown him out. 
Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. Situation has been spinning out of control. Again, we're still in the early hours of Friday morning. Pilate renders his final decision on the basis of practical expediency rather than truth and justice. And before communicating his final decision, Pilate engages in a symbolic action. He goes over to this little water bowl over here and washes his hands in front of all the crowd. It's screaming, crucify him, to indicate that he was innocent of Jesus' blood. The crowds respond to Pilate's action by accepting responsibility. This is amazing. His blood be on us and on our children. But of course, Pilate's efforts to wash himself clean don't work. Blood is on everybody's hands. So the final stage of Jesus' Roman trial concludes with another scourging. And that then leads to the journey up to the hill of Golgotha. Jesus begins the journey to Golgotha. Remember, guys, he hasn't even slept in the last 24 hours. Been beaten, been made fun of, been mocked, been lied about. Now he's on his way to Golgotha, carrying his own cross, passing through the the gate outside the wall of Jerusalem. He's going outside the gate. We've got these guys, Simon's sons, right? Alexander and Rufus. By the way, we think Rufus may have been part of the early church. He would have been known. They help him carry the cross. They finally get to Golgotha. The soldiers offer Jesus some wine mixed with gall and myrrh, possibly some, uh, maybe like a sedative of some kind of sort or whatever. Jesus smells it, says no, refuses to drink. And it's at this point that they nail his hands and his feet into the cross. They pound the charge above him, his head, king of the Jews. They lift up that cross where he hangs in between those two criminals. Counted as a sinner, though he had committed no wrong. People see he's up there hanging, suffering. People making fun of him, right? He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Ha! Let him come down from the cross. We'll believe him then. But of course he does, right? That's Sunday, but it's still Friday. Jesus, even as he's hanging on the cross on this Friday, still is praying for forgiveness of others. John records that there's several of Jesus' followers, his mother, Mary, the, the beloved disciples, probably John, they stand near the cross at some point during the crucifixion. He's hanging. Again, he got that charge above his head. And Jesus hangs on the cross for about six hours. Mark notes that they crucified Jesus around the third hour, which would have been mid-morning, around nine o'clock, somewhere between there and 12. And about 12 o'clock, mid-afternoon, the sixth hour, they called it, around noon, Some strange, unusual darkness takes over the land. Of course, darkness is representing divine lament, divine judgment. And it's dark from round about 12 to round about 3. It's said to be the ninth hour, an 
at the ninth hour. That's three o'clock. If you've, if you've been in my office, you see my clock is set to three o'clock. At the ninth hour, three o'clock, Jesus utters a despairing cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, one there. There the forsaken son. I, I believe at the height of the wrath of God now at his back, About this time he dies. He breathes his final breath. And it's at this moment we we learn that the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place in the temple, 60 feet high, by the way, 30 feet wide, huge curtain, only passed into by a high priest once a day, on the once a year, on the day of atonement. It is at that point, the the moment Jesus dies, right here, three o'clock on Friday afternoon, today, curtain tears top to bottom. Because of his death, all those that trust him, they could go right in to meet with God anytime we want. And about this time when Jesus dies, there's also this earthquake about three o'clock Friday afternoon. Earthquake shakes the entire area. And then thirdly, we get this weird, strange, amazing uh, account where uh, some deceased saints rise from the dead and appear to many in Jerusalem. The first fruits apparently of Jesus' death. And about this time when Jesus utters his last, the centurion and those keeping watch over Jesus and the earthquake, they accompany supernatural. They see all this going on. And they say, the centurion says, truly, this was the son of God. And it's getting close to dark now. And of course, they, Jewish law about this time, Sabbath, the Sabbath of Passover week, right? The Jewish leaders, they ask Pilate to break the legs of the criminals so that their bodies can be taken down before the Sabbath, which remember that would start it when, when the sun goes down Friday night, maybe around seven o'clock. So according to Deuteronomy 21, 22 and 23, the bodies of hanged criminals defiled by the land by remaining on a tree overnight. And the Jewish leaders, they don't want this to happen. So they're going to go down. They're just going to break their legs, which will cause them to suffocate and die quickly or quicker. And so when the soldiers come to Jesus, they realize he's already dead. Our salvation is purchased, guys. He died our death. They come to him, but before breaking his bones to fulfill scripture, that not one of his bones would be broken, they see that he's already dead. Of course, you know the story. They stick a spear in his side and out comes blood and water. Fulfilling also scripture. Zechariah 12.10. When they look on me, on him they have pierced. They shall mourn for him. Jesus was dead. As evening approaches, we got this guy, final account here. Evening approaches, Joseph of Arimathea shows up. He goes to Pilate and he asks for permission to bury the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph, he kind of comes out of the blue. We don't know who this guy is, but Joseph is a rich man who was a member of the Sanhedrin. Apparently he's a secret disciple of Jesus. He did not consent to the ruling of the council's decision and he was actively looking for the kingdom of God. So he goes to, he goes to Pilate, took a lot of courage to do that, right? He goes to, uh, to Pilate and he requests to bury Jesus' body. Mark notes that Pilate's surprised that Jesus died so quickly. I don't know why, but anyway, Pilate grants Joseph's request to bury the body. Joseph has purchased a linen shroud. He wraps Jesus' body in it and lays the body in his own newly cut tomb. And you know who else is with 
Joseph of Arimathea at this time taking care of that body? A guy by the name of Nicodemus. <laughs> John chapter 3. There he was. Coming in the cover of darkness to learn more about Jesus. Apparently, Nicodemus had given his life to Christ. And now he's tending to the body of Jesus. Along with Joseph of Arimathea. They put him in there. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to wrap the body in the linen. An extravagant right gesture indicating this high esteem which with Nicodemus had of Jesus. The burial of Jesus in the tomb of the rich man confirms Isaiah's prophecy and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Another, so many passages being fulfilled. And by the way, as they put him in there, there's a couple other folks that see where they lay him. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph. Joseph. They observe Jesus' burial and they know the tomb in which he's laid. It's Friday. Our Lord has died. He has atoned for our sins. It is a great and terrible day. It's Friday. Sunday's coming. <laughs>